Dan Shelley is Executive Director of the Radio Television Digital News Association and Foundation. Much of his time is now devoted to fighting for press freedoms. And that's a topic of our Fast Chat today. FMC Fast Chat takes you inside the news so you can be in the know in 30 minutes. Hosted by Fair Media Council CEO and Executive Director Jackie Clement, Fast Chat features notables in news, media, and business. Hi, Dan. Hey, Jackie. How are you? (laughs) Good. Thank you. Let's ease into the chat today by you telling us a little bit about what the Radio Television Digital News Association does. So what do you do all day? (laughs) Sure. Uh, And thank you for having me on. It's great to see you again. Um, RTDNA was founded in 1946, uh, and uh, we are the world's largest professional association devoted exclusively Uh, to broadcast and digital journalists. We do that in uh, three main ways. One is by uh, recognizing outstanding responsible journalism. We are the Murrows people and administer the Edward R. Murrow Awards. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second is by providing professional development uh, and training to journalists at all levels of their careers from students to senior executive. And the third, and this is the area where I spend much of my time these days, is on protecting the First Amendment and defending against all attacks on the First Amendment and its uh, guarantee of freedom of the press and the press's obligation, a constitutionally enshrined obligation to serve their communities by seeking and reporting the truth. Okay, so it's twofold. We've got the ability for journalists to do their jobs, but also the reason why they do their job is to keep the public informed and their right to know. Exactly. Uh, And, you know, journalists do play a critical role in society uh, in that uh, they shine a light on problems in their communities that otherwise may have gone unnoticed. And when they do so, the stories that uh, expose those problems often serve as catalysts for positive change. Obviously, the print industry has gone through some serious economic Mm -hmm. challenges, uh, even pre-COVID, but exacerbated by uh, the, the year of COVID of 2020. Um, broadcast, local broadcast uh, news uh, has, has really flourished uh, despite COVID. I mean, the industry had to completely reinvent itself, obviously, because of, of uh, the pandemic. Uh, but then uh, the racial reawakening movement that occurred following the death of George Floyd Uh, the outrage over the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, and other similar cases uh, really demonstrated uh, two things. Number one, the need for a robust news media to chronicle the events and to keep track of what public officials and law enforcement agencies are doing uh, in the public's name on the public's behalf. And secondly, to shine a light on this uh, social debate Uh, that really reached critical mass. So uh, 2020, while very challenging from a COVID perspective, has uh, also once again uh, shown a light on the uh, importance of journalism in American society. Back up just one minute here to talk about the training of journalists, because Mm -hmm. you offer that. Are, Are you seeing a lot of younger journalists coming in for training? Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it it starts at journalism schools predominantly where enrollments, largely speaking, generally speaking, have been trending upward uh, over the past four or five years uh, to to levels that really hadn't been seen since the days immediate 
uh, post Watergate back okay. uh, in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of training to be done for journalists at that level, but uh, the journalists uh, who are already working and already professional journalists at all levels of their career, uh, we found 2020 to be particularly, um, uh, I, I won't say challenging, though it was in many ways, but we found a need to pivot a bit in our professional development training uh, to areas such as uh, collaborating in the COVID world where everybody's remote and in Zoom windows uh, and also dealing with stress and mental health issues, uh, which uh, were exacerbated by COVID and remote workflows, uh, but also by the uh, civil unrest that uh, seemed to exist in all 50 states and communities large and small in, in all kinds of forms. Uh, and uh, some of it was violent. Some of it was um, was uh, not particularly uh, safe for journalists. So we provide safety training as well. Uh, it's, it's been a challenging time, but a rewarding time as well. I imagine, though, you do a fair amount of traveling. Today, you're coming to us from Missouri State University. So you do have your ear to the ground on what's happening um, across the country on how journalists are doing their jobs. That's right. What I missed most during the year of COVID was traveling because uh, our association is based in the National Press Building in Washington. I live in New York City uh, and uh, in pre-COVID times, and now I'm I'm finally getting back to some semblance of of what pre-COVID times were like. Uh, I would spend about half of my time uh, when I wasn't traveling back and forth between New York and Washington, uh, traveling the country. Uh, I'm in the Midwest today. Uh, I often speak to uh, university journalism programs. I speak to state broadcasters associations across the country, to regional journalism associations, uh, particularly in the Midwest and on the West Coast, uh, some on the East Coast as well. Uh, but I, I love to travel and I love to put my finger on the pulse of what's happening beyond left coast and the East Coast, <laughs> as it were. You mean, you mean there's more to the country than that? I love to be in, in flyover country. I love, <laughs> I love it out here. And what kind of questions do the students there have for you? You know, it, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I've spoken to a number of classes this week. Uh, at the journalism program here. And uh, they're very, very astute and adept questions about media ownership and media uh, consolidation and uh, the the news deserts, as some call them, uh, in the newspaper industry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the large swaths of America that are underserved uh, by print journalism uh, and the role of broadcast and digital journalism in trying to fill those voids uh, with more uh, hyper-local journalism and uh, information. That's become very, very important. It's actually great that technology allows us to be able to bridge that gap finally. But now let's delve into the main issue at hand here, which is it's early May, so world press freedoms are always topical right now. Um, What is it that's going on in the United States that leads you to have to fight for press freedoms in this day and age? Well, Monday, May 3rd was World Press Freedom Day. It was first designated by the United Nations uh, a few decades ago. Uh, One of the most gratifying things that occurred on World Press Freedom Day this year uh, was that the President of the United States issued a statement in full support of press freedom uh, 
and the First Amendment and the role of journalists in a democratic society. Well, that's, that's a bit a, of a change. That's a, <laughs> that, that's a significant change, a huge change. Uh, we're, we're also expecting, and, and you know, I, I mentioned that I, I spend a lot of my time working on press freedom issues these days, most of my time. Uh, and I've been working for months with members of Congress uh, on Capitol Hill and their, their key staff members uh, to push for legislation that would uh, make it somewhat easier for journalists to do their jobs. Not because journalists deserve special treatment. I'm not suggesting that in any way, shape or form, uh, but because the role of journalists in society is so critical, uh, you know, uh, Jackie can't show up at every town council meeting. Jackie doesn't want to be in the middle of a, mm -hmm. uh, a protest uh, to, to see what is going on and how the police are, are uh, performing their duties. That's, that's the role of journalists. And it's, it's a role that we take very seriously uh, and that we're very eager to be able to serve the public by fulfilling. But it's become increasingly challenging over the last few years in particular. Uh, in 2017, for the first time in its history, uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is the uh, international uh, watchdog for journalism safety issues, partnered with us uh, and about uh, two dozen other press freedom organizations in starting to track attacks, assaults, arrests, targeting journalists in the United States, something traditionally they had only done uh, overseas in, in other countries. Uh, so that tells you how the mood has changed and, and how the, the paradigm has shifted. Uh, so in working with uh, key congressional aides and key members of Congress in Washington, uh, they're on the precipice of introducing sometime this month, we expect, uh, two pieces of legislation Okay. One, one is a reintroduction of the Journalist Protection Act. And the Journalist Protection Act was first introduced in uh, 2017. Uh, it went nowhere in the Senate. Um, now uh, it's about to be reintroduced. And what the Journalist Protection Act would do very quickly is it would make it a federal crime to assault and or cause bodily harm uh, to a journalist while that journalist was performing his or her duties. Okay. What What is it now? Is there any rule in place at all? Well, it, it, it depends state by state and okay. jurisdiction by jurisdiction within each state. Okay. Uh, essentially what the Journalist Protection Act would do, it would give federal prosecutors the ability to prosecute people who physically attacked and harmed journalists if local prosecutors declined to do so. Okay. So it, it would just add that extra layer of protection. In many cases, when journalists are assaulted uh, now, uh, there are local prosecutions. But in some cases, local prosecutors have declined for some reason or another to pursue it. This would give uh, the Justice Department that ability. Okay. The second piece of legislation is one that we have been champion championing yeah. Uh, and it is called the Right to Record Police Act of 2021. And uh, they're still still working out the final details uh, among various congressional uh, staff offices. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, essentially what the Right to Record Police Act would do uh, is to make it an unambiguous right guaranteed under federal law for citizens, including journalists, lawfully to record the activities of police subject to reasonable time, manner, and place restrictions. 
New York State already has such a law in place. A lot of local police jurisdictions have such regulations in place. Mm -hmm. uh, if you watched the Derek Chauvin trial recently, you would have seen uh, they've actually presented uh, in evidence the, the, the prosecution, the Minneapolis Police Department policy that guarantees citizens the right unequivocally uh, to, and unambiguously to record the activities of law enforcement. And as we all know, uh, Darnella Fraser and her uh, iPhone video yes. is likely what led uh, more than any other factor uh, to the conviction of Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. So th uh, the, the problem, however, having said all of that, is that not every state, mm -hmm. not every local jurisdiction has such regulations or laws in place. And when you look at uh, the federal appeals court circuits around the country, only half of the federal appeals courts have ruled that citizens have this unambiguous right. The other half have been moot or silent so far. Uh, so there's no uh, viable pathway to get this to the US Supreme Court uh, for an ultimate ruling because there's no disagreement so far among the circuit uh, courts of appeal. Okay. Uh, and typically for the Supreme Court to accept the case, there has to be a, a disagreement in rulings between two or more circuit courts of appeal. So, that's not a viable way to go. The best way to go, in our opinion, is through federal legislation uh, with uh, the current makeup of the House and Senate. We think we have a good chance of getting something passed, though, as I indicated, there are still discussions underway on Capitol Hill uh, about the best way to to enforce uh, this unambiguous right once it's codified into federal law. OK, Let, let's talk about reasonable, though. I think that's the key word in this. Can you give us some examples of what people could and couldn't do? Well, it varies by jurisdiction. And we okay. saw during the post-George Floyd uh, demonstrations and protests and civil unrest, we saw some law enforcement agencies respect the rights of journalists, uh, which they should. Uh, but far too often, we saw law enforcement uh, officers and agencies uh, wantonly and brazenly uh, confiscating citizens' iPhones or cell phones, uh, professional camera equipment, smashing it in the street. We've seen journalists arrested uh, while complying with law enforcement uh, requests to move onto the sidewalk or to move on to uh, a specific area where the police would like them to go. Okay. Uh, we've seen journalists actually chased down by police and tackled and arrested, even though they were clearly identifiable as journalists, uh, simply because they were recording the activities of police. Uh, so it, it, it's 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 a problem in many parts of the country. Uh, it's even a, even I mentioned that New York State already has a law that that guarantees citizens and journalists right to record police. Uh, but New York State has a law, but uh, in uh, in uh, New York City, mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Rochester, uh, where there was a, a, a racial uh, reawakening uh, moment or two, uh, in Buffalo, there have been uh, documented cases, and in other parts of the state of New York as well, of law enforcement completely disregarding that law and, and, and wantonly interfering with journalists and citizens' right to record their activities. 
All right. So from the side of the argument from the police, what what, what are their reasonings? Are, do they believe they're within their rights or maybe they're not aware of what a journalist's rights are? Uh, in some cases, I, I, I have to believe that they're just not aware. Okay. Uh, and that's a training problem in their their various departments. But uh, you cannot convince me that the NYPD, for example, uh, you cannot convince me that the Buffalo Police Department, the Rochester Police Department, you cannot convince me that they are not aware. Uh, they should be aware. I believe they are aware uh, of the state law that was, and by the way, the state law has not been a state law for that long. It was signed into law by Governor Cuomo post George Floyd amongst all of the police reform legislation uh, that was passed by the, the uh, uh, state legislature in New York uh, last uh, summer uh, and early fall. So it, it's hard for me to believe in New York that law enforcement is unaware. Okay. Uh, in some cases, it's, it's just um, a new heightened level or heightened manifestation of the ongoing tensions between police and journalists. Uh, that we've seen for years, particularly in, in, in the city of New York. It's nothing new that the NYPD has not been the kindest to journalists by and large. Uh, and uh, for many, many years, fully credentialed uh, journalists, credentialed by uh, the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information of the New York Police, De uh, Police Department, uh, NYPD, um, they would be mistreated. They would be corralled into uh, specific areas far away from crime scenes or accident scenes, while other members of the public could get as close as they want. I mean, it, it, there's been ongoing friction for decades. And I'm not presumptuous enough to believe that the Federal Right to Record Police Act would, would uh, help resolve some of those issues and longstanding tensions, uh, but it can't hurt. And it would give an, it would give journalists and regular citizens too yet another mechanism because in its current form and again it's subject to revision before being introduced mm -hmm. in its current form the right to record police act uh, would give citizens the right to sue uh, federal state local law enforcement agencies for interfering with their right lawfully to record the activities of police. Okay, are you finding that? the issues that are popping up surrounding this have been exasperated by social media? Um, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, RTDNA at its core is a First Amendment organization. And we believe every citizen has the right uh, to gather information and to exercise their First Amendment rights uh, of freedom of not just the press, but freedom of expression uh, and freedom of speech. Uh, there are restrictions to every freedom, as mm -hmm. we know. You can't yell crowd, fire in a crowded right. theater, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, I think the social media, while it has been so good at connecting people, mm -hmm. uh, it also has a dark, uh, soft underbelly that uh, causes a lot of social harm in some cases. Uh, and in, in many countries around the world, uh, countries I've been to, such as Russia and India, uh, social media has played a very, uh, very negative role in in spreading uh, in helping to spread disinformation, which is the knowing spread of inaccurate information, and misinformation, which is the unwitting spread of false information. 
Uh, and in other countries, that's led to, to rioting and deaths, and it, it's just horrible. We've not quite reached that level yet in the United States, uh, but while everyone has a right to say uh, what they want to say, things that appear on social media should be taken with a very large grain of salt. Uh, what kind of timeline are we looking at in terms of both of these issues? Well, my hope and belief as of the moment we're uh, recording this this podcast is mm-hmm. that uh, these one or both of these bills will be introduced sometime in the month of May 2021. Uh, and then at that point, it will be up to the House and Senate Judiciary Committee's uh, and their chairs as to the timing of when they're actually acted upon. Uh, the the current Congress, as you know, runs through the end of 2022. So we've got a little uh, time and grade that we can build up here uh, to get uh, something done between now and the end of next year. Okay. I'm curious, the pushback to, to both of these issues. What What is the other side's argument that we don't need either of these acts? On the Journalist Protection Act, it's that, well, journalists are, like every citizen, they already are protected uh, against assault um, by existing state and local uh, laws and ordinances. So why do you need a federal law uh, to do something? Uh, It's the same argument you hear when people oppose hate crimes laws. Uh, It's already against the law to assault somebody. So why should they get in more trouble if they assault somebody because uh, it's it's uh, a hate crime motivated kind of situation. Got it. So I'm not equating the two, but I'm saying it's the same argument against JPA, Journalist Protection Act, that you hear uh, in those cases. Uh, on the Right to Record Police Act, it's a little more complicated uh, because um, there is not much appetite on Capitol Hill right now to provide incentives Uh, to police departments in the form of additional federal funding. The original draft of the Right to Record Police Act would have rewarded state and local police agencies Mm -hmm. for complying with the law by giving them uh, a small percentage in additional federal funding each year. Well, the the reality that we've run into is there's very little, if any, appetite on Capitol Hill uh, to give police agencies more money uh, at this particular moment, uh, okay. when uh, you know the the post George Floyd era and uh, the racial reawakening uh, conversations are going on, so uh, that's what's being worked on right now. Not to get too inside baseball a- a- about it, but yeah. um, uh, the staffs uh, in the Senate and the House are are both working to try to find all right. What incentive can we give to local law enforcement? Uh, we've got the we've got the stick in the form of the right to sue anyone who uh, doesn't uh, anyone whose right to record police is violated. We need uh, a carrot as well, particularly for local and state law enforcement. What will that carrot look like? I yeah. guess is the best way to put it. That's 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 where the conversations are at this moment. Okay, so if you're successful with both of these acts, <laughs> what's next then? What's the next step in this equation? Well, there will always be some level of threat to the, you know, a lot of people historically have said the public's uh, right to know. And I agree with that 100%. But I like to say it's the public's need to know that has always been under assault in some form or another. 
and has always been threatened in some form or another. It's become very popular. Uh, by popular, I mean widespread, not necessarily popular like, yay, I love that idea. Yeah. Uh, among local officials all across the country who felt uh, empowered and emboldened by the previous administration in Washington uh, to be resistant to the, the news media and to press inquiries uh, for, for things that had historically been routine, like routine public records requests, yeah. uh, routine access to public meetings, uh, state open records, uh, some states call them sunshine laws. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are seeing more and more restrictions in states uh, across the country to access to public records, access to public meetings, uh, and it's becoming more difficult in many places around the country for journalists and the citizens they serve to get access to that publicly funded, publicly owned information that often is critical for the public to know so that the public can make decisions uh, that will improve their communities. Now, how do you stay on top of all this? Do you rely on the journalists that are members of your organization? We rely on journalists that are members of our organization. We frequently partner with other press freedom groups okay. uh, who may become aware of a situation in a particular location around the country uh, that we haven't become aware of, or we're often alerted to these situations that we make our partner press freedom groups uh, aware of. Uh, and uh, we work very much in concert uh, with each other when it makes sense for all of us. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, the last week of April, uh, I signed on to a letter on behalf of RTDNA with more than 100 other press freedom and other groups, uh, a letter to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, mm -hmm. urging him to include treatment of the news media in the Justice Department's new reviews of the Minneapolis and Louisville Police Departments, okay. uh, which stemmed from the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor cases. Yeah. Okay. Good for you. That's amazing work. And the collaboration of everyone coming together makes it so much more powerful. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the same thing happened during the Obama administration or something very similar. Uh, you know, for all the criticism uh, President Trump got into for fake news, fake news, enemy of the people, enemy of the people, mm -hmm. uh, no one that we're aware of at the highest levels of the Trump administration ever ordered the arrest of a journalist. Yeah, there there were federal law enforcement officers and agents that arrested journalists, mm -hmm. uh, but no one at the highest levels of the Justice Department or the White House that we're aware of ever ordered the arrest of journalists. The Obama administration at its highest levels did order the arrests of journalists. Yeah. Uh, in in uh, cases where journalists had gotten confidential leaks of classified information. Mm -hmm. uh, journalists were threatened with jail. A few journalists were put into jail. So our association, in concert with uh, many of our partner freedom uh, press freedom organizations, met with then Attorney General Eric Holder and got him to rewrite the department, the Justice Department regulations, so that federal law enforcement could go after journalists to try to find the the source of leaked classified information only as a last result and then only with the personal approval of the attorney general. Okay. And despite uh, when Jeff Sessions was appointed attorney general by President Trump, 
one of the first things he said was he was going to review those holder rules about going after the, the news media, but he never actually did. So um, those rules still exist. And we are going to hold Merrick Garland's feet to the Eric Holder fire, if you will, <laughs> okay. uh, to make sure that those regulations remain in place and that journalists are pursued by federal law enforcement only as a last result. Okay. A last resort. Got it. Now, I've heard from plenty in the Washington press corps about just how tough the Obama era rules were, but yet little was said of it. But because no one imagined at the time that. Uh, the United States government would actively pursue journalists until they did. Mm -hmm. And when they did, uh, we and other press freedom groups responded accordingly and were able uh, to, to get calmer heads to prevail uh, in, in the form of Eric Holder, yeah. uh, President Obama's first attorney general. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Trump administration never did change those rules to, despite indicating that they wanted to. Uh, we're pleased so far, even though we're barely 100 days into the Biden administration. But I will tell you, the Biden administration is a lot tougher to cover than the Trump administration was because it's much more disciplined in terms of message control. Okay. And uh, the White House correspondents I've spoken with, some of whom are members of our association, they, uh, despite all of the, the perils of covering Trump, particularly at his rallies around the country, mm -hmm. uh, despite all the perils of covering Trump, uh, his White House was, uh, it would leak like a sieve and you can get uh, juicy scoops every day to the point of exhaustion for <laughs> a lot of journalists. Yeah. I mean, the, the lid was never on in the Trump administration. Right. Because you get a, a tweet at two in the morning or you get a, a leak from a disgruntled administration aide uh, about something that was going on or being contemplated. Mm -hmm. uh, the Biden administration is extremely disciplined. Now, I'm going to change gears on, on you a little bit here because we have a mm -hmm. question. The question is, what steps do you feel need to be taken by the industry to help reg regain the public's trust in journalists? Well, there are a lot of things, and that, that's a great question because it's a it's a significant issue. Yeah. Uh, the trust in journalism has been eroding slowly for many years, uh, exacerbated by the administration we had in power uh, until January 20th of this year. Uh, and there are several things that news organizations can and should do to, to regain trust. First of all, the good news for local journalism is that uh, public opinion surveys consistently show that while, uh, and, and I hate to use this expression almost because it's kind of trite, but it's very true and apt in this case. You know, people always used to say, I hate Congress in the aggregate, but I sure like my representative. Right. And now people often say, I hate the media, the news media in the aggregate, but I sure like that John Smith who gives me the news at 11 o'clock every night on channel two or channel four or right. channel five or channel seven. Yeah. And the same is true. So to your question specifically, what must newsrooms do? Be as transparent as possible, not just about what they report, but about how they report it. Show the public demonstrate to the public how the sausage is made. It's not always attractive. It's not always a pretty picture. Yep. Uh, it's not always pleasant, uh, but it's critical. Uh, if, for example, and this sounds very simplistic, but uh, I think it's a very important principle. 
if you're doing a story as a journalist on a scandal at City Hall and you try to call the commissioner of sanitation 12 times to get a comment, actually show your reporter on the phone making the call <laughs> to, to, you know, proof yeah. of life kind of thing to show that you actually did make the call to right. try to get a comment from fill in the blank public official. Uh, the other thing uh, about transparency is that you have to own up to your mistakes and you have to own up to your mistakes promptly. You have to uh, admit and clarify and correct the mistakes with the same prominence in which they first appeared, uh, either in print, on radio, on uh, television, in digital. Uh, and then you have, to own, you have to hold those responsible for the mistakes accountable. You have to disclose to the public how the mistake was made, why the mistake was made, who made the mistake, and how you held that person accountable. Uh, that's the only way, and those are the only ways, I should say, uh, that uh, the, the fourth estate has any reasonable chance of regaining public trust. Okay. And apologize when you're wrong, right? Absolutely. Without question and has, without hesitation. Okay. One more question as we have to wrap up already. And this is the hardest question of all. You ready? Mm, okay. What's the best part about being Dan Shelley? Oh my gosh. The best <laughs> part about being Dan Shelley is that, uh, you know, I'm a lifelong journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a working journalist for many years in uh, one of the smallest markets in the country and the largest market in the country, New York. Yeah. Uh, and um now I get to, to travel the country and travel the world and speak uh, as an advocate for journalism uh, and as a representative for journalists uh, and for the public, because journalists, as, as I've said many times in this conversation and say many times uh, in other conversations, journalists exist to serve the public. Uh, and I'm one of the guys who gets to, to go around and uh, preach that gospel, if you will, uh, and help explain to people why journalism is essential to our democracy and help journalists do a better job uh, of fulfilling their responsibility to seek a report. The Fair Media Council is a 501c3 nonprofit organization advocating for quality news and working to create a media-savvy society. For more information about the Fair Media Council and upcoming Fast Chat shows, check out fairmediacouncil.org. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.